You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, sponsored by Starburst Magazine, and for the next 60 minutes, you're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that we don't have to. I'm JR. I am Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And this is our show looking back at the run of five episodes that said goodbye to the ponds. Hooray. And seeing as we have already talked about each of these stories when we reviewed them individually, and seeing as we put out on Facebook and elsewhere for people to write in with comments about these stories, we've got so many emails that essentially... This episode's pretty much going to be made up of people's emails, which we'll probably just come in and comment on. So what we've done, well, what we did this time was something slightly different. In the past, when we've done episodes that concentrated on a specific year or season, we four voted those stories in our order of preference. And I collated the figures and came up with the overall order in which we liked the stories that made up that season. You got your so, abacus out, didn't you? Oh, I did. I got my abacus out. <clears throat> you made that sound so dirty. <laughs> oh, did I? Yeah, how can you make, you know, 70s mathematical equipment dirty? Uh, by, I don't uh, know, just ask JR to say it. <laughs> <laughs> what we did this time was, because it's going to be a show made up of your emails, we asked you to vote for the stories. And we have come up with the order of preference that the Blue Box podcast listenership. Right. Uh, what is yeah. it? Ooh. Well, we're going to go through them in reverse order, <laughs> starting with the story that people like the least. Mm-hmm. And when I say the name of the story that people like the least, and we realize how much we like it and how good it was, full stop, and we read the emails that are in praise of it, we'll know how strong exactly those five episodes really were. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's because that's because a lot of people have emailed in and I'm just building up the suspense before they know whether their emails Very are Very quickly be read before out. you do get started proper. Just looking on Facebook proper. proper. Just looking on Facebook at some of the feedback from the listeners. I found it quite interesting that a lot of people's first place choices was the same as a lot of people's last place choices. It's really divided opinion. Are you Marmite? reading my sheet here? No, not at all. It's a Marmite here's season. an interesting fact. The story that came fifth out of the five in order of popularity had as many first place placings as the story that came second. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we had one out and out outright winner. But the other four episodes were pretty much split. Mm, wow. The one that came in last did come in last by a relatively fair distance. But not because it was a bad story, but just because I don't think it's one of those stories that, even though obviously several people did, 
I don't think it's one of those stories that generally would have picked up a lot of first place votes. It wasn't the, it wasn't one of the flashy, attention grabbing episodes. Let's put it that way. Anyway, the story that came in fifth was a town called Mercy. Uh, are we surprised mm. at that? No. Not really. No, no. I think I'm not surprised. No, I don't think the, anything deserves to be last place. I really don't. Well, out of those five episodes, they were in any other year. If there'd been a year of fourteen stories, those five episodes would all have come in the top six or seven, wouldn't they? Really, mm. top five even. Well, unless there were some <laughs> other spectacularly good episodes, <laughs> those it was a particularly strong run of five episodes. I think so. But let's get on with the first email, and this is from Luke James Riley. He says. While it was a very good episode, I find myself waiting for Angels in Manhattan. These are fun episodes, but they are like but they are like side quests in a game. They maintain your enjoyment, but you're mostly interested in getting back to the main quest. I like having the Doctor on TV, but I want some progression of his story. I think that kind of basically goes along with what I was just saying about Town Called Mercy not being a, an obvious choice for a first place. Because it's not a story that really in the bigger picture, does anything. And also, we we all, or most of us, said that it worked better on second viewing. It did, definitely. Because I think we're a bit uh, nonplussed about it when we were talking about it on our podcast. Uh, And I listened back to that recently and thought, hmm, come on, guys. It is actually better than that. So I talked about myself, really, more than anybody else. But, uh, yeah, you're you're right. I think um, people were waiting for the Manhattan episode um people around me said that as well but i wasn't i just wanted to enjoy and each one as it came as well the episode after a town called mercy was the power of three which was the big mysterious episode that nobody knew anything about mm. and everybody was kind of i think the western one for all that it was a good episode it did sort of follow a lot of the genre conventions so it wasn't like you were going to get any big surprises Whereas there the, weren't any surprises in terms Whereas the of following week was a surprise from start to finish. Mm. Uh, look, David Adams says, well, hmm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Very succinct. Do you think he talks like that? I think uh, he does, yeah. How do I say if I enjoyed it without grading it out of 10, he asks, or comparing it to previous episodes, builds circle of rocks around myself. You know what? <laughs> yeah. Average episode, but the saving grace for me was the fact that it stood alone. No complicated backstory, TARDIS Mm. and its occupants arrive, sort out local problem, and leave. That's something that has been missing since 2005. And to me, it was more like a target book of old, with added death. A quick enjoyable (laughs) romp, and then on to next week. I'm not going to watch it twice, or I might start asking why the Carla spaceship was egg-shaped. Dan says he's already asked that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why was it egg shaped. I, uh, you know, if you're going to ask why things are the way they are in Doctor Who, you're probably better off watching Star Trek. <laughs> Richard <laughs> Hugh, <laughs> Richard Hugh Parkin says I have to confess up front that I am a huge fan of Doctor Who showrunner in waiting Toby Whithouse. Though, that's not to say that I can't be critical of his work. I was very indifferent towards Vampires of Venice a few years ago. Same here. Yeah, I think Vampires in Venice, actually, it was funny. But then once you got past the 
fact that it was Rory's first go in the TARDIS, so you could have quite a bit of fun with that. Didn't really seem to achieve as much as his other stories usually do. Um, that said, Richard Hubarkin carries on. This is the first story of this series that left me on cloud nine after first viewing, with a second viewing confirming just how good the episode is. For a show that has been tasked with creating the impossible each week for a significantly reduced budget, A Town Called Mercy looked amazing thanks to wonderful locations and cinematography. Director Saul Metstein's direction was sumptuous and iconic without being too knowing when playing with the well-established tropes of Western movies. Unlike the previous two stories, this episode felt evenly paced and fitted perfectly into its 46-minute running time. Whilst there were some great action sequences and wonderfully funny dialogue, this episode excelled in its exploration of characters, morality and the lengths to which an individual will go to achieve peace. Whilst quick to accuse Carla Jax, the Doctor is equally to blame, having destroyed worlds and civilizations in his quest for peace. This murky moral ambiguity allowed Matt Smith to reveal a much darker side of his Doctor and a performance that was one of his best so far. The episode also managed to have a lot of heart too, and I have to admit that I had a little lump in my throat as the episode drew to a close. I suspect this won't be as well received all with all viewers, but I thought it was the most enjoyable, well-rounded one of the most enjoyable, well-rounded stories we have seen this series. Cowboys versus aliens, it was not, and if you'll excuse the pun, that was a small mercy. Yeah, <coughs> you're not wrong. That was a terrible film. Cowboys versus aliens. Oh, I ain't seen it. Horrendous. Uh, Cowboys vs. Zombies. No, that's a film. Cowboys vs. Zombies. <laughs> Not Chavs vs. Zombies. Has that been made? Cockneys uh, vs. Zombies. Zombies, it's called. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gary Davison says, It felt a little by the book to me on first viewing. That said, it had some nice... Uh, that said... This, uh, la, la, la. <laughs> that said, it had some nice bits. The scene between the Doctor and Jex was wonderfully played. Again, showed a far side of... I'm going <clears> to <throat> just pause for a second and come back to this email. Relax I've got and regenerate. my tongue out of my teeth. <laughs> That's my new catchphrase from last week. <laughs> the... <clears throat> I'm in you okay over there. Yeah. You're licking your lolly. Yeah. Listen, I'm licking a lolly to stop me coughing. <clears throat> Simon's got a my cold from a few weeks ago. Mm. Uh, the scene between the Doctor and Jex was wonderfully played. Again showed a far darker 11th Doctor apparently unwilling to let Jex try and absolve himself while himself having wiped out his own race and home world as well mm. as the Daleks. Hypocrite. Yeah. It, you know, these people are bringing this up now. It was... A much deeper episode than any of the other four. And, you know, as much as we may have enjoyed the other four, it was nice to have an episode that actually did do that. Because if it had been five fairly light episodes, it might have felt a much less successful run. It, it could have done without Jex actually saying the line, um, you know, I'm not one or the other, am I, Doctor? You know, it'd be easier if I was the mad scientist. Because I think we were getting that anyway, so it didn't need to be that obvious. You could have gone even deeper and even more darker, I reckon, with that episode. Um, Gary says... This is- Sorry, Mark just did a shrug of, oh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to come across that way. 
Uh, Garrett, Gary carries on to say, the scenes with the horse were very funny, although I find myself more inclined to rewatch Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, and I'm looking forward to The Power of Three much, much more. Hmm. Which, you know, again, goes back to what I was saying. I think there's some good uh, character moments in it. It's, to me, I felt it perhaps wasn't the best episode of the run, and that's probably why it's come... And if you don't like... Those. You don't like westerns? I love westerns. Do you? I, I thought I think the cliche was the worst realised. Crichton. In the whole series. Yeah, it was Crichton, wasn't it? With the tattoo. God, it was. You're absolutely was right. Red Dwarf reference. Yeah, I never thought about it. Oh, thanks, guys. You just completely ruined an episode for me now. It was, it was just <laughs> a, a Red Dwarf character, really, wasn't it? It's the sort of thing they'd... And finally, <laughs> uh, Matthew Thompson says... I felt it was slow and boring. I even did some channel flicking for the first time during a Doctor Who episode. Whoa. Do you want me to say that in my JR voice? No. No, please don't. <laughs> I felt it was slow and boring. I even did some channel <laughs> flicking <laughs> for the first time during a Doctor <laughs> Who episode. This is getting creepy. <laughs> uh, that's the last of our emails on A Town Called Mercy. And now the story that came in fourth out of the five which was Simon really the power of three really yeah. okay. I know I, really? I absolutely adored the power wow. of three but having said that you know the series kicked off with a Dalek episode finished up with the last episode for the ponds and had dinosaurs on a spaceship mm. so you know mm. if you look at it that way power of three was probably always going to come in fourth um, anyway, Jeff Waddell says, or Waddle, no, Waddell must be. Jeff, can you yeah. do a sookie and send us an MPEG if you say in your name so we know how to pronounce it? <laughs> Shit, it's got to be Waddell, isn't it? It must be, yeah. You spelt Waddle. Anyway, Jeff says, I think this and dinosaurs are by far my favourites of the season so far. The only thing puzzling me is why the cubes acted in different ways, i.e. why one spins, why one draws blood, why one shoots, and why one plays the birdie song. To which Luke James Riley replied, this was going on on Facebook, this conversation, to mirror, to mirror the individuality of humans. And Simon said they were trying different things to provoke different reactions in order to find a weakness. Was Thank that you, much. Simon? Me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well done. Thank you. Give him a sausage. And also, even further beyond that, not just to find the weakness, but they were trying different things to find out all about humans, what makes us tick. Because if you just draw yeah. blood, you only find out about blood. But if you try all these different mm. things, you're getting a fully rounded picture. So it wasn't even necessarily specifically to find the weakness, but to find the overall picture, which you could then mm. draw the weakness from. Which I suppose is a roundabout way of saying the same thing. Shut up, Jay. I'll read the next email mm -hmm. from Matthew Thompson. I enjoyed the episode. I thought it was funny and interesting, but it seemed a rush to finish in forty-five minutes. And actually, and actually, the episode underran by about <clears throat> three or four minutes. And this yeah, was the another... end. The ending was a rush for me. Well, this is another thing that came up online. People were saying it's underrun. Why didn't they have a longer scene at the end? But, you know, my theory is that the episode was shorter because it was so snappily directed. So the <laughs> script was written for an episode that would have been less snappily directed 
and would have come in at 45 minutes. And then because the director did a lot of, you know, the kind of whizzing about stuff that got a lot of message across in very short space of time, that actually the episode came in four minutes shorter than they expected it to in the edit, by which time it was too late to add anything else to it. It's the antithesis of Mercy, wasn't it? Really? They could have filled in some of that time they lost with showing them rescuing the poor buggers who got left behind on the spaceship. When they get when they go back to get uh, Rory's dad and leave the others just to get blown up. What others? The Rory. ones who've been kidnapped by the hospital. Oh yeah, good Lickies. point. What happened to them? Hey, there has to be some casualties in Doctor Who, even Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Hmm. Uh, look, Can't everybody live? Brian Finley says, The whole story sorted out by the wave of the sonic screwdriver. Like it or not, Bidmead had a point about that screwdriver. Yeah, it was a pain, isn't it? I want to destroy it completely. Get rid of it for the next season. Uh, as we said... No that, sonic. Uh, no, in the... Sonic out. Sonic out. Come and join me. Sonic... Right. Don't. Simon's far too interested in his lolly. He hasn't said anything this episode. Probably. It's just yeah, that was my idea. Sucking on his lolly with his wild, mad, evil eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say he's sucking on a lolly with his wild, mad, evil eyes, I've I don't mean me. he's got I've his lolly in his eyes. <laughs> it was a hint of Dan Laurel in his eyes there for a minute. Anyway, what we were talking about? <clears throat> the sonic screwdriver. Out. In the 45-minute episode, it's important to have a shortcut. You can do it without Sonic. Just just write a clever... It has become too much of a magic wand. Exactly what I said, I think, wasn't it, on one of the podcasts. Mm. That's what it feels but like. In, for instance, Frontier in Space, the Doctor can get locked up in a room for a whole 25-minute episode because they've got six episodes to fill. Mm-hmm. In The Power <laughs> of Three, they've got less than a third of that time to get through it. And think about the sonic screwdriver at the end of the power of three. It's not the fact that it's a sonic screwdriver. It's the fact that an automated system is doing something that it shouldn't be doing. And the doctor has to reset it so it goes back onto a course. And so it's not about the sonic screwdriver. That's just the tool to do the job. It's about the job. Okay, but you could have quite easily have had the hollow screen in front of him. He doesn't need to wave the wand around. He can just tap a few things and go, oh no, hang on a minute. If I touch this bit and then I touch this bit over here and I become a, you know, a, a connection and an electrical charge can run through me and go into the other one and blow that. I don't know. Just, just try and think of something clever, funny, interesting that could take two seconds to do. Right. But it's not the sonic screwdriver. And if he did that, we'd all be having this conversation the other way around saying, <laughs> why was he running around like a twat when he's got a sonic screwdriver in his pocket? Which he'd probably just stepped on. <clears throat> Damien Ashley just says simply such a rushed ending Raph Edwards says they should be doing two times 30 minute episodes on all of this season's stories there's Ooh, an that's, interesting that's point. a good idea because I think two or three of the episodes came in at nearer 50 than 40 mm, two 25 minute episodes two 30 minute yeah that would work you know with a cliffhanger um, Sarah Jane was doing two 27s to basically make a 50-minute story, really, 55-minute yeah. story. And they benefited from that, I thought. They did, but, and this is the point, that's on a channel that shows 20- and 30-minute programmes, whereas Doctor Who's on BBC One on a Saturday night in a <clears> prime-time <throat> slot. 
And I just think modern audiences would feel shortchanged by 25, 30 minute episodes. They'd feel they weren't getting their money's worth. Maybe. I'm sure of it. I think so. You couldn't imagine, for example, Casualty being in half an hour a week, could you? Is it not? Well, it's an hour, isn't it? I don't know. Never watch it. <clears throat> okay, but you know, Lee. Mm. I only ever watch the opening 10 minutes to see who, who dies and how. There was this brilliant one where this guy just fell on his tennis racket and it went straight into his neck. That was great. <coughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> and moving back to Doctor Who. But you get my point. EastEnders and the soaps. I think Simon's had something fun. Did you put something in his tea? Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think you should have uh, sleeping pills. Richard Hugh Parkin <laughs> says, uh, I've just left the following response to a Facebook friend on the subject of this week's episode. Uh, suffice it to say, she despised this week's episode. So he's repeated it here for the benefit of us because he thinks it pretty much sums up his feelings on the power of three he says i always try to re-watch before reviewing as i found that opinions can change quite dramatically mm. after initial <laughs> reactions to a story and power of three is the perfect example of this i really didn't like this episode when i watched it on saturday i felt that it, i was being shortchanged with a scattergun approach to storytelling that hinted at so much but never really came up trumps. It was Doctor Who meets Hellraiser, and for some reason, an unmasked Darth Vader appeared at the end. I even considered a quick channel flick. I even considered a quick channel flick. And I never do this. However, a day later, I re-watched it. Without the hype, the unrealistic expectations, and my opinion was totally different. Yes, it was uneven, and one of the episodes where some economies had necessarily been made, and it won't be there in my top ten stories of all time. But there was a heartfelt, emotional story at the core. How do you decide between the excitement of the Doctor and the snug security of married life? There were some great performances and some really nice dialogue. The direction was slick, even though director Douglas McKinnon seems to have found the annoying flair plug-in overused by J.J. Abrams. Given that we can expect heartbreak next week, this was an episode which reminds us how enjoyable our time with the Pongs has been and what we'll no doubt miss in a few weeks' time. First viewing, I gave it 4 out of 10. Second viewing, 7 out of 10. Sci-fi, fun, action, romance and a few important life questions. I think Power of Three ticked all the boxes. Yeah, I agree with that. I do. He apologised at the end for making the boxes pun. Yay. Uh, what's the J.J. Abrams thing? I missed that. In Star Trek, you get all these little lens flare things going off quite a lot. Oh, yeah. And also in the one that came after it, which I forget the name of now. Mm-hmm. Film or series? Oh. The film that came after Star Trek the, by J.J. Abrams. The one with the monster in it that's set in the 80s. Super 8. Super 8, mm. Used it a lot in that. <clears throat> what did he direct? Super. I think he was involved in it. I don't know if he. I thought, yeah, it. I thought he just produced it. Mm. Anyway, are we talking about J.J. Abrams or are we talking about <coughs> Doctor Who? <laughs> did we like the um, the comedy? No, he, nobody's mentioning the comedy aspect in um, Power Three because I thought that was a uh, that was where it could have dipped. Didn't uh, quite. Uh, well, Matt Smith pulled it off because he's mm. he's a 
bit of a comedy legend, and I think he's very underrated comedian actually. Mm. Uh, physical comedian, he is a clown. Really, you know, he's a very good one too. But there is a moment where they sped him up while he was yes. doing. They didn't need to do that. They could have just had him at normal pace doing that, and it would still be funny. But the yeah, cut the speeding out, speeding up type thing. Cut out the speeding up. Oh God, give me a, one of those sweets. <laughs> that one I do. And the story which came third out of five. So this is exactly our mid-placed story. Was Asylum of the Daleks. Do you want to repeat that, Mark, in case people couldn't hear? Asylum of the Daleks. He said that without reading it. Uh, Damien Ashley says... Damien Ashley says, Well, I wasn't expecting to see her in that. Criticisms first. Good reason to use all those old Daleks. Shame they didn't do anything with them. Seriously, you had to look really hard to spot any that weren't regulation bronze. And why not just teleport that nuclear bomb onto the planet? And the nanobots, we've seen it loads of times before, where there's something inside something else. Apart from that, it was great. I bet I wasn't the only one who, when they saw Oswin, thought, hang on, isn't that the new chick? And what was all that... Rem- <clears throat> and what was with all the remembering... I expect that will be a recurring theme, especially as now the Daleks have no idea who he is. I need to watch it again on my own this time. That's Damien Ashley. Remember me, she says. Yeah. Does that mean she's really a silence? She breaks that fourth wall, doesn't she? Looks at the camera and says it. Does that mean she's a silence? Remember, I said it first, right? The comic timing of that was incredible. Oh, the end of uh, Lee's lolly has just fallen off. After me trying to say something cool. <laughs> is she a silence? She wouldn't suit the suit, would she? <laughs> no, she wouldn't. I'd like to see her in it, though. That'd be amusing. Anyway, why do you all go quiet looking at me like I'm a complete turd when I start talking about stuff like that? Uh, can you answer that question, Mark? Yeah, go on, come on. Is it because you're a complete... No, no, come on. Jeff Waddell says, I was disappointed in the Daleks. They were similar under all the dust and cobwebs. Total lack of using the special weapons Dalek, my favourite. Thought Oswin was too Amy stroke Rose stroke Ace-like. Getting bored of the sassy pretty lassie now. It was okay, but not as great as it seems to be for lots of other people. But hey-ho. Yeah, I want a a dame with intelligence. She's a genius. Yeah, she's a whiz with a computer. Yeah, so is Zoe. Yeah. So it's a similar kind of, I'm Works a whiz. Works for me. Uh, uh, but her dialogue was, you know, it was just exactly the same as Amy's. It, it was Moffat, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Be interesting to see what other writers managed to make of her, assuming that her character is still the same when she comes back as it was in this, seeing as we don't know how she's going to come back. But then I guess her next two episodes are both going to be Stephen Moffat-written episodes as well. So, uh, you know, she is going to be the same, isn't she? Mm, mm. Even if he tries not to. (laughs) Richard Hugh Parkin says, Initially, I felt that Asylum of the Daleks had some great ideas and a really epic feel. I was totally surprised by the appearance of Oswin, whose name means God's friend in Old English, by the way. Actually, 
<clears throat> people have come up with this. Oswin, if you translate it into Old English, people think is God's friend. It's not. It's the Lord's friend. And that's why it's Oswin, because it's the Time Lord's friend. Is that, is that true? official? Oh, no, that's true. Of course it's true. Because <laughs> you said it. Oh, no, no, no. I'm saying people have said Oswin. People have translated Oswin. Oh, yeah. And just... the most commonly used translation is God's friend. But actually the literal translation is Lord's friend. So I'm saying that's why it's been chosen, because mm -hmm. she is the Time Lord's, or going to be the Time Lord's friend. So the God bit's irrelevant. Mm. The Lord bit's the relevant bit. I'm hoping <clears throat> she's not called Oswin. Well, she's not, is she? Why? What? But when she comes back, she's not going to be still Oswin. She's going to be called something else. Clara that, or something. That's what I was hoping, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, okay. Dave. Dave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she's not going to be called Dave when she comes back. Dave Etta. No, she's got married to Mr. Goswin. Anyway, next bit of feedback. <laughs> um, still from Richard Hugh Bargain. However, I ultimately felt that the Daleks were underused and that the story should probably have been a two-parter to allow a fuller narrative to unfold. However, I then watched the episode again and realised why I'd felt a little underwhelmed first time round. Asylum of the Daleks isn't really a Dalek story. It's a story that features Daleks, but it's really a story about the, the Pons and Oswin. Any producer has to weigh up the balance between revealing plot points in a trailer and thus ensuring higher audience figures and keeping major plot points a secret, as in the Cyberman reveal at the end of episode one of Earthshock. In revealing so many spoilery images of the Parliament of Daleks and Daleks from across the show's history, Stephen Moffat has cleverly, cleverly used some sleight-of-hand trickery and totally distracted fans from the story's surprise reveal of Oswin. Now, we have many unanswered questions and are eager to know more. Plus, the failing relationship between the Pons is now firmly established for the following stories before their departure. Try watching the story again and see if your initial impressions change. I think I'll have to, actually. But I think he knit the, hit the, knit the hail on the Ned. <laughs> <laughs> I, think he hit the, I think he hit the nail on the head as to why I found that episode a bit of a disappointment. Uh, yeah. Because I was fully expecting and hoping mm. that Stephen Moffat was going to have done his first proper monster story mm. and of course it wasn't you've got a scene in the parliament of daleks at the start and then the rest of it has really got nothing to do it's with only daleks. the rory scene that really touched on it wasn't mm. it the, was <clears> and that was very good down. it was really good yeah but what you really needed was for the doctor to to <clears throat> engage with the daleks yeah and apart from that one scene where he talks to him in the parliament there's no engagement between the doctor and the daleks whatsoever unless you consider I didn't feel he was in, uh, you know, it, it, I didn't feel the darks were a threat <clears throat> that at all until Rory touched one and it was waking up and that was a really good scene. But, you know, you have all those Daleks there. Use and, them. Like, use them. They weren't, it wasn't the maddest Daleks in the universe, it was the saddest Daleks in the universe <laughs> because they were all asleep. Yeah. Really it was the old... at all, were they, either? There was no real... It was the old people's home of the Daleks, not the asylum. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Gary Davison says well Asylum of the Daleks was brilliant funny, creepy, a little bit sad and just a little bit mad much like last year's Let's Kill Hitler the story had precious little to do with the 
Oh, much like last year's Let's Kill Hitler, the story had precious little to do with the titular pepper pots. I was worried all the pre-publicity would spoil me, but the Parliament of the Daleks and the much-vaunted Every Dalek Ever were in, the, were in the end just window dressing for our reintroduction to the Doctor and the Ponds. That's not to say the Daleks didn't have their moments. Rory's eggs scene in the asylum was by turns both funny and creepy. <laughs> My wife commented at that point how much she'll miss Arthur Darville's performance, and I have yeah. to agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Will we miss Amy? Um, I will do a bit now, actually. I know, it's funny. Just over these last five. She's done quite well. I thought she did... No, do you know something? No, I won't, no. <laughs> I thought she did much better last year as well. Look at the girl who waited. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's where it all started getting better. And finally on Asylum, Luke James Riley says, for a series opener, it was one of the best. The production values have been increased a lot since 2005. It would not be out of place in the cinema. No. No. Yeah, I think we commented on that as well, didn't we? Especially the opening. Me and yeah. Mark were pretty sexed up. I mean, sorry. <laughs> Me and Mark were pretty excited. <laughs> we weren't going to talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> no, we. Me and Mark were pretty excited about the opening yeah. sequence of that. I thought. What are you doing we, with that microphone, Mark? Let's let's draw a veil over that. Oh no, let's no, let's not do that. <laughs> was it? They did expand on the Dalek uh, mythos a bit, didn't they? Um, with uh, the eye stalks coming out of people's heads and things like that, you know, with the you nanobots. Dalek like nanobots that. is quite a scary prospect, really, isn't it? Yeah. What? No, no, I was just thinking, <laughs> thinking what you would look like with something sticking out of your head. Oh, dear. Okay, we, that lolly? Uh, we move Fing, on to the story <laughs> which came second <laughs> in Sorry. our poll, and that story is... The dinosaurs? Angels are mad. It's angels. It's number two. Wow. Yeah. I well. see your inability to read hasn't improved. <laughs> Wasn't expecting to read it. <laughs> you just showed me a piece of paper. I've shown you a piece of paper with lots of very small writing and in huge letters across the middle of it, the angels take Manhattan. Um, I wasn't sure if you uh, had to turn the paper over. The angels take Manhattan is number two, folks. Uh, Gary Davison says, halfway through the Angels episode, great stuff as usual. Not sure I agree with the whole there is no such thing as fixed points debacle. I like the position it put David Tennant's doctor in in Waters of Mars and indeed, and indeed fires of Pompeii. Adelaide's death was needed to return history to its proper course, just as Pete Tyler's or Donna's was in Father's Day and Turn Left. Even in A Christmas Carol, the doctor's interference almost didn't work. Surely some things have to happen. Pompeii, Hitler, the Great Fire, extinction of the dinosaurs, etc. and so on. It's just that Bowie Base 1 is in our future. What if it had been about the destruction of the Space Shuttle Columbia? Mm. The thing I don't get currently is how can the fall of the 11th, the fields of Trenzalore, and the first question all still be waiting for the Doctor when as far as the universe is concerned, the Doctor is dead? This is true. We'll find out, I'm sure, in good time. So, that question has destroyed my own fixed points argument then, hasn't it? Ah well, maybe it's an in-universe explanation I need again. During the Russell T. Davis era, the rules at least appeared consistent. I guess things have always shifted from one production team to another. Uh, by the way, says, regarding the movie of the week thing, that was discussed during the first part of the episode, when we were talking about the... Uh, 
episode when we did our review of the angels of manhattan mm. pretty sure i read that the moth has said that they won't end with the ponds oh the movie good. of the week right. good excellent uh also oh yeah this is an interesting question this is brought up by gary he read an article uh, on cult box he thinks discussing the possibility that the current adventures the five with the ponds were shown out of sequence now right. in other words uh this was brought up by quite a few people yeah in i think it's the power of three we see them under henry the eighth's bed right yeah. yeah and in a town called mercy we see them talking about having visited henry the eighth so there's something about uh, rory leaving his phone charger behind in henry the eighth's on switch yes so there you go in town called mercy they're talking about something that yeah. happened in the power of three mm. or alternately you could read it this way in a town called mercy they realize that rory's left his phone charger behind in henry the eighth's en suite and in power Go of three get it. they've gone back to get it right yeah yeah so either way is possible mm. quite a lot of people brought this up you know when the episodes are on fans like to go online and discuss certain theories about stuff that they see going on that they think might have a wider significance. Um, were these episodes shown deliberately out of sequence was one thing. The flickering lights, I think we talked about that, didn't we? Yeah. <clears throat> and insofar as I'm aware, the flickering lights didn't mean anything, didn't come to anything. No. And even in fact, in a couple of the episodes, there weren't any flickering <laughs> lights. There was a changing light bulb for example, mm. which some people read as a flickering light because they needed a flickering light in that story in order for their theory to be true. But just because he was changing a light bulb didn't necessarily no, mean it was their just theory. A story That's a great device, scene. Wasn't it? Another podcast I quite enjoy was speculating on all the names that were cropping up, uh, the biblical names like uh, Moses Solomon. and Solomon. And I don't think that's really... No, there was a character called Solomon in one story and Matt Smith <laughs> says Crikey Moses in another. <laughs> no, I think you could quite put that together. You'd have to be a real proper conspiracy theorist to... Uh, are there any Amy's in the Bible? Amelia's? Yeah. Uh, Mark Laycock says, One question. When the ponds are atop Winter Key, staring into each other's eyes, who's watching the rather large angels? Peripheral vision. This is what my son said at the time. Why did both not get zapped? Does the uh, Statue of Liberty angel just think, oh, they're having a moment. I'll hang back. Isn't love's young dream just the sweetest? It's because there's a guy on the other side of the street looking out of his apartment, looking at the angel going, what the hell is that? So it's keeping exactly where he is. Yeah. It's quite possible. And, says Mark, is it me or is Melody River Song Pond a bit cold? If that were my mum and dad, I'd be going mental and doing my utmost to save them. Yeah, not really a proper mum and dad relationship, is it? We haven't mm. ascertained whether she's not able to go back and see them, though, have we? Well, she has to post them the manuscript so yes. that they can publish it, doesn't she? She could turn up and give it to them. Yeah, but what I'm saying she's, is... She's not really she known discusses... most of her life anyway, so... Well, what I'm saying is she discusses the fact that she needs to post it to them. So I think the assumption that we're making there is that she can't give it to them in person. 
Otherwise, she wouldn't be needing to discuss the fact that she has to post it. Mm. So I'm guessing not. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mark Cockrum came back on Mark Laycock's post about uh, Melody Riversong Pond and says, she says in the episode that she's a psychopath. They don't, to fit, they don't tend to feel emotional response to such things. <laughs> you know a lot about this, do you, Mark? I mean, it's one of psycho movies. Forums, like he knows everything. Seriously, who is he? <laughs> Jeff Waddell. <laughs> Jeff Waddell says, "I'm guessing most people loved it, but it was flat for me. I felt no emotions whatsoever. Probably because mm. Rory has died so many times before. Mm. If this was in the last season after the wedding of River Song, I would have loved it. But for me, it kind of negates this whole." These whole four previous episodes, which I mostly enjoyed. I like Amy and Rory, but they are past their sell-by date long ago. Good, but not great. This is this is true, actually. If, if somebody was to see that as their first episode of The Ponds, that would be probably quite a powerful episode. But because we ha- we do know Rory dies a million times. And the it, fact we all knew that they were going in that story yeah, from months true. before the series even started, so kind of blunts the emotional effect does it Mark? Going. psychopaths don't feel emotion that's probably they? why I didn't feel much emotion <laughs> <then>. <laughs> see if you feel this no nothing oh, well that's true uh, Scott Varnum <laughs> said I'd like to read a review of the book from the time that it was allegedly written the what? book that they're reading in the story yeah hmm he says he'd, he'd just be interested to read a rev- a contemporaneous review of the book. Right. You know, just to fill in the backstory more, I suppose. Yeah. Give it a bit more verisimilitude. It is coming out, isn't it, as a book? It right? came out mm. only as an e-book, sadly. It's oh. not coming out in print. Oh. Which is a shame. I was kind With of this rubbish cover. It. it needs to be printed on cheap paper, <laughs> doesn't it? Like a pulp novel. It does, yeah. Or creased, crinkled corners. Is that where the word pulp comes from? Probably, JR. In Don't look at me like that. <laughs> you must know. I do know. Yeah, yeah. And is it? Yes, yes. Well, there you go. The answer's not probably <laughs> then, is it? <clears throat> Brian Finley says, A good story, but I really have had enough of River Song. If we really have to have more of a, can we at least have a break for a while? Hmm, yeah. No more. Bad my fill of song. I think, um, actually, River Song, if she comes back now, we'll have a different dynamic with the Doctor because everything we've seen of River Song since Silence in the Library has been in the ongoing story arc of the Ponds and River Song. So if we get to see River Song now, mm. even though It's not going to be her story, is it, now? No. I think it'll, it's exactly. going to be bookended now, isn't it? It will so. be an adventure style as well, which probably would be quite fun. Well, the thing is, even though we didn't know at the time of episodes like The Time of Angels and The Pandorica Opens that she was their daughter, Stephen Moffat obviously always knew. And yes, like you've just pointed out, that sort of ongoing story arc of River Song and the Ponds has been all part of one extended story. Up to the wedding of River Song, where we kind of... You know, by that time during C- Series 6, that story's kind of come to an end. 
But this was like a coda to that. Riversong was in this because it was the Pond's last story, and she had to be, being their daughter. So the next time she turns up will be the first time since Silence of the Library that she can just be Riversong rather than being Riversong, Amy Pond's daughter. So actually, next time she comes back, it could potentially be completely different and people might fall in love with the character all over again. Uh, Richard Hugh Parkin. Atmospherically, it was wonderful, with great cinematography and a genuine feeling of menace, giving the Weeping Angels their best and most effective appearance since Blink. Yeah. The pre-title sequence was totally engrossing and set the tone of the episode beautifully and all performances were top-notch, believable and always on the right side of melodrama. I did feel that it was a terrible waste to have the Statue of Liberty appear before the titles. I would happily allow viewers to see the gigantic mouth behind the private detective but tease this, indicate and hint but only reveal the screaming statue when Amy and Rory are on the building's roof. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. yeah, that was a, that was the weakest part for me, where you saw the Statue of Liberty and then you went into the theme tune. It just didn't punch anything and for didn't me. You feel that showing the screaming angel was overused as well on the entrance to the hotel. No, 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 I, I liked too many that. Times I thought maybe. Why was that little girl doing the thing with the hands? She was doing like you know, putting her hands over her eyes and then taking them away again in that window. The little girl. Obviously, people who live near who notice this stuff going on, and right. But yeah, essentially, it's, it's there like the two little girls in The Shining, isn't it? It's that same sort. Mm. Maybe she's telling Gosh. people not to blink. Yes. Maybe she was telling people to blink because then the weeping angels would concentrate on the people in that building and leave the people in her building alone. Mm. Maybe she was telling people fall into their trap mm. so the angels would be occupied elsewhere right. if she's seen what's going on she just wants to keep the angels away from her uh, Richard Hugh Parkin carries on and then there was the finale I'm usually the first to blub like a baby at a sad ending more so when a character gets to say their final ever goodbye to someone they love for instance in the films E.T. or Ghost and yet I wasn't overly moved by Amy's final farewell why? Because there wasn't really anything sad about it. She's going back in time to spend the rest of her life with the love of her life. Even better, we know that both characters will live until a ripe old age. If this ending was sad for anyone, it would be for those who will feel the loss of their company, i.e. the Doctor, River and Brian. Mm -hmm. Personally, I would have engineered things so that the episode ended with Brian on one of his holiday travels discovering Melody Pond's book and reading an afterword written to say goodbye to him rather than the Doctor. Yeah. That's, a, that's a nice way of ending as well. <clears throat> yeah. We'll come back to this. Mm. All things considered, the episode was undoubtedly a perfect resolution to the story of Amy and Rory, despite the almost forgivable despite the almost unforgivable sepia freeze frame at the very end. Mm. It was faithful to the characters and fitting that despite the dangers, deaths and near divorces, the couple we've grown to love ended their days happily together and in love. I'm glad they did pay off that moment from 11th hour. Where she has a TARDIS. Mm. Yeah. It's a nice touch. <clears throat> and I think <clears throat> if anything says the ponds are gone, it's the fact that we've seen their graves. The fact that they've gone off to live a happy life, and we talked about this 45 minutes ago, whatever. It's the fact that the Doctor knows that they live a happy life and he never sees them again that stops him from going back. 
And the fact that we've seen their gravestone is not so much that we know they're dead, that they've died, but the gravestone is like putting a full stop yeah, on the doctor's decision. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's like saying to the doctor, this is how it should be and this is where it should end. It's not telling him what has to happen. It's telling him what should happen. Mm-hmm. And he decides, in effect, in a way, to go along with it because he knows it's right. Mm-hmm. And so we move on to the episode that us and our listeners thought was the best episode of the series and by quite some distance. And it is Mark of the Rani. Oh. Hey. Dinosaurs on a spaceship. <laughs> Can you insert that music? Because um, basically, we should have a. We all thought it was the best one, didn't we? Yeah. And they voted it the best one. How right were we? I'm really impressed at how how right we were at saying straight away after watching that episode how good it was. They only voted that well because they listened to our review of it afterwards, <laughs> and we influenced their. Uh, we don't pat ourselves on, Don't pat ourselves on about that much, not. but we, we did not. a good job there. Because yeah. there was a fair amount of negative press and, and negative reviews of yeah. it. And we went polar opposite to that. But only purely on instinct, we we just we we did the podcast directly after watching it the first time. It was completely um, fresh yeah. reaction to it. There was no influence from elsewhere. So, you know. You can't get that music though, can't you, Sam? I could. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Steve from Manchester, Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. The Is most... that his surname? From Manchester. Yes. He doesn't like his surname being used, but if you want to know what his surname is, then listen to the Phonic Screwdriver <laughs> radio show oh. where we've mentioned it several times. <clears throat> he says, the most outright fun Doctor Who has been for what seems like a very long time. Solomon was played wonderfully, and his killing of the Silurians was possibly the darkest Doctor, Doctor yeah, Who has been for a few years genuinely dark not just a lot of stuff about being afraid of clowns uh loved the reveal about the silurians which hadn't even occurred to me and the dinosaur special effects were wonderful my only niggles were that the robots sounded just like mitchell and webb on one of their many other shows though i suppose there can't have been any other reason for casting them i think it's a big plus that they did sound like mitchell and webb yeah same here no, no, no. Being His point is not Webb. that they sounded like Mitchell and Webb, <laughs> but they, they sounded like Mitchell and Webb on their other shows. In other words, that they weren't playing in character, no. but that they were playing basically characters that they yeah, really played. Yeah, but they are comedians who play pretty much a, a, an exaggerated version of themselves, uh, so they don't really put on a voice when they do their peep show. So, I mean, you don't see any of them actually going out and putting on South African accents or whatever to... to to play a part in so it, it, there's no real acting going on here they are comedians essentially the whole point is so you, therefore you don't get it's Mitchell funny and Webb on and say we'd like you to do something completely different that you've no, never done before you do your normal voice that isn't camp <laughs> I didn't say that <laughs> right Steve carries on and says and finally having cracked the problem of how to write Amy as a strong female character actually using her brains to solve problems and shouldering a fair bit of the exposition by deducing stuff and not just having the doctor reel it off at top speed finally she has something to do other than demand the attention of rory and the doctor having finally done that 
they go and crowbar Nefertiti into the story. And because mm. she has zero to actually do, they have to show that she's not just a cipher by putting her up against a male character who is only there to be a chauvinist and say sexist stuff that she can react angrily against. Only the Doctor Who writing team could reduce one of the strongest women in history to the role of a feisty companion. Yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got a friend who absolutely can't stand those two characters being in the story or the opening parts of that that, that episode. So he, you know, he strongly he hates that one actually, dinosaurs in the spaceship. But uh, I really enjoyed those two as well. Though, I thought it. I thought they were okay. And mm. you know, the reason Nefertiti was in it was so that Solomon could find something that was even more valuable yeah. than dinosaurs. Mm. You needed to have. You needed to have. Do you know what? I wouldn't say they're more, she's more valuable than dinosaurs, though, in my view. I don't know. Sorry. He can't take the dinosaurs with him, can he? No, this He's is escaping true. on a small ship. So he needs to offset his loss of the dinosaurs. He uses the word unique as well, doesn't yeah, he? Against yeah, against something that is, in relative terms, of an equivalent value. Does he trade, or is he purely his own possession? Do we get no trades? He trades. Yeah. That's the idea. So he's how can he prove it's Nefertiti when he's selling her on the market? Because normally you've he's got, got his little scanner thingy, isn't he? Oh, he's got a little scanner thingy. Yeah, oh. that's the doctor, doesn't it? This scanner scans anybody and anything and says exactly who and what it is. The point is, how many characters from history? And this would have to be somebody who history doesn't have the full story of. So it's not somebody who's died a natural death that's recorded. How many characters from history are that famous and have disappeared? We don't know where they're buried. King Arthur? (laughs) So the point is Nefertiti. Chesney Hawks? Simon would have been there. (laughs) Simon would have been there trying to shoehorn that. Tyrannosaurus Rex baby into his spaceship. Stuff Nefertiti. Oh, he'd have been collecting the <laughs> eggs. Maybe stuff Nefertiti. Maybe as an afterthought. <laughs> Graham Boyd says Dinosaurs uh, on a Spaceship was a great fun romp about larceny, genocide, and slavery. It was a little bit high speed Douglas Adams. Mm. But my point to make is this the Doctor does not send Doc Solomon to his death. Yes, he uses him to distract the missiles, but he also hands him the tools to save himself and explains to him how to use them. Yeah. To elaborate, the Doctor leaves Solomon the green MacGuffin, which transmits the ship signal, and then spells it out to Solomon that missiles are following that, not the specific ship. Yeah. So all he has to do is set the controls really bloody quickly and chuck it out of the window. Solomon will come back. He will be back. He better. You heard it here first, folks. He better. He's too good to waste. You know, the Doctor doesn't kill Solomon because those missiles were heading for that ship anyway. It's just that Solomon is the only one he doesn't save. Yeah. Yeah. Gary Davison says, My inner seven-year-old is, like this 46-year-old also, very, very happy. Mm -hmm. The ghosts of Invasion of the Dinosaurs, brilliant back then, not so much now, are finally laid to rest. (laughs) A couple of other thoughts. Based on pond life, as well as this, is the Doctor visiting the ponds in the wrong linear order? See, that's come up again. This was after only two weeks. There's a big clue of that in pond life, isn't there? Because most of these emails came in immediately after the episodes, or, you know, in the couple of days afterwards. Uh, The look on the Doctor's face after the vice versa conversation with Amy was heartbreaking. 
Is the silence that will fall the universe forgetting the Doctor? Hmm, could be. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, because yet again, after the Daleks, we had the repetition of the phrase Doctor Who. Uh, the Doctor couldn't be identified by Solomon's computer. Mm -hmm. So maybe that is literally the silence falling, he says. And yet the uh, Indian space team or whoever they were managed to contact him. They knew him. They knew he still existed, didn't they? I didn't quite understand <coughs> that. If he's forgotten, why? How did they know to contact him by the did via they contact the, him by the psychic paper? I'm sure they did. Remember, tell the truth. Yeah. Anyway, um, great fun. Felt like a Pertwee Baker romp with just a dash of trout and tenant. The perfect Doctor Who episode, possibly. I did say that a, a good Doctor episode, episode um, is one where you can put any Doctor in it and it would work. And I think that was it. And you need to cover bases as well, and it did. I mean, it was a romp, and it was hilarious, and it was entertaining and fast and, and funny. I, I too, and somebody... yeah, it did carry some really dark and some serious stuff. And that, mm. Yes, I was going to say the point that somebody made earlier about the fact that, you know, it, it was genocide. Yeah, yeah. The Silurians were were destroyed or chucked out. The side. <coughs> it was really dark, so it and, wasn't yeah. all fun, was it? And it, um, yeah, really good. And, and, he, uh, and the Silurian reveal was brilliant. We he really showed it. his villainy, didn't he, when he shot that harmless Triceratops, yeah. which you nearly cried at, didn't you, Simon? I, I yeah, I did. I I saved those. I hadn't touched those tears since Jurassic Park. It was. Sean M. Vale says, I loved it. What fun. There were definitely parts during which I said aloud, that's one for the kids, the Triceratops snot, the bickering <laughs> robots. And I guess I'm one of the kids, despite my advanced age, because I was laughing gleefully. It was a romp, and not to be overanalyzed. However, <laughs> considering the conservation message that was so strong in the story, perhaps the Doctor brought Riddell not just for his hunting skills, but also because the Doctor wanted him to learn a bit more about the value of life. Uh, I've heard podcasts and read reviews that question why he'd be along. These seem like two good reasons to me, especially if the Doctor liked him enough and thought that he could be a better person after seeing the consequence of random killing of wildlife. Yeah, but he didn't know. The Doctor didn't know what no, he was getting he into until he was know. on there. So. You've got to take a leap of faith there, Lee. Huge one. I also <laughs> had no problem with the Doctor making Solomon pay the ultimate price. He's got it in him. And he left Adolf off last series, so maybe that's all he's got mercy-wise for now. He let Adolf off, did you say? I'm saying... <laughs> no, Sean brought up the fact that... Yeah. He would Doctor leave Hitler alone for the Solomon, same reason why he didn't destroy the Daleks. he allowed mm. Adolf Hitler to live. Right, okay. Sorry, so you were talking at the same time. Sorry, yeah. I'll, I'll try and sort that out in the mix. But uh, <laughs> No, I was just no, making the point that the Doctor... Will... <laughs> 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 I'll turn myself down. Um, just making the point that the Doctor would leave Hitler alone for the same reason that he didn't destroy the Daleks. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Sean says maybe that's all he's got in him mercy-wise. I think the point Sean's making is that the Doctor has run out of mercy by this point. Mm. For sure. Great cast, good effects, a fun story and some genuinely touching moments. Nine out of ten. Sean carries on to say, I also have to say to the people on other websites who are complaining that the dinosaurs did not have feathers, I'm sorry, but they've <laughs> obviously not watched the episode carefully enough. 
You not watch it frame by frame what? when you're watching it? The smaller... Th- if you were watching it in HD, you'd have seen this. The smaller theropod dinosaurs that were hunting Amy and Riddell, possibly Deinonychus... Dynonychus. <laughs> you to say. I said it though. I got it. I got it right. <laughs> Deinonychus. <laughs> but they seem to lack the telltale claws. Were obviously feathered, at least across their backs and shoulders. The feathers even flared out in an aggressive display when they were attacking, and they were evident in other scenes afterwards. Maybe not on the T Rex, but definitely later. They need to take another look. Yeah, <coughs> maybe a bit fussy to be honest. It's Doctor Who. Bloody dinosaur experts now, aren't they? Always <laughs> fucking experts. <laughs> Are they? I guess your goat, doesn't it, God's sake. Relax and regenerate. And finally on Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, Richard Hugh Parkin. I opted to use my two viewings before reviewing technique before collecting my thoughts on Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Having watched it twice, I can say that I enjoyed it overall, though not as much as other viewers. Whilst I liked a pacey story, I felt that this episode tried to cram in far too much up front, with character introductions and plot points somewhat rushed. Rupert Graves and Rianne Steele were underused and relatively redundant in their respective roles of Riddell and Nefertiti. David Bradley's villainous Solomon was wonderfully seedy, and Mark Williams was a total joy and inspired casting as Mm -hmm. Rory's dad, who despite being remarkably unfazed by both the TARDIS and space travel, <laughs> added warmth, humour and humanity to a story where the reptiles were the true stars. Trowel. I'm never <clears throat> going to forget the trowel. Fulfilling every schoolboy's dinosaur daydreams, the production team pulled off a minor miracle with the CGI and animatronic dinosaurs. It was stunning work. Especially considering the reported budget cuts. Chris Chibnall's script was full of great lines and humour, though surprisingly little menace or scares for a story featuring dinosaurs. Mm. All in all, this episode will be remembered for what it was. Nothing but a load of fun, 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 which is both praise and criticism. Mm. I don't know, I thought it carried some pretty dark and weighty stuff. Yes, absolutely. Right, that's Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. It is a classic. It is. Deservedly first place, I think. Yeah. And we all agreed on it at the time. Yeah, it'll be a first. Any final <laughs> thoughts on the series as a whole? Mini-series as a whole? I thought the whole whole season was really strong. It's the strongest in mm. years. Yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed every single one. Even though at the time I think we rated things a little bit lower and thought, oh, you know, this is okay. The more I watch these, and I've watched them all three <coughs> times now, I've watched them all three times and think, they're getting better every time I watch them. So they're really fantastic little tiny films, and it really works. I didn't think it was going to work for Doctor Who this format, but it does. So I hope the next season's as strong as this. I'm enjoying it a lot more than six. Series six, I think it's stronger. I like the idea of having individual stories, just stepping away from the arcs for a bit, keeps it fresh. And actually, the flow of stories and the style of stories and the standard of stories is uh, we were talking about where the RTD thing of building and building and building towards the end, it's actually flowing really nicely. Mm. It's not yeah, e- really. There's no real dip in there. There was you could, you could say the cowboy story was a dip, but it wasn't really. It was um, it was very nicely treading water. To I'd say I don't like it as much as Series 6. Really? Yeah. I, not because I don't think the stories are good, but because I felt there was a consistency across the Series 6 stories that I don't think this is sad. 
not consistency consistency in terms of quality but mm. consistency in terms of storytelling and last year there were seven standalone stories so it's not like doctor who lost its ability to do standalone stories there were only four episodes mm. there were only yeah. four episodes last year that had the river song arc in so you know the girl who waited and the doctor's wife mm-hmm. And even Night Terrors and The Curse of the Black Spot. Uh, but not that I'm saying this year's a disappointment, but I liked the thought that it was all going somewhere last year. Whereas this year, apart from the fact that it's obviously Pond-centric, the first four episodes, or the first three, just seemed, you know, not bad, but just seemed like they were kind of holding a place while we waited for that adventure to come to an end. This this series is a, is an example of Doctor Who being in rude health, though, isn't it? It really is. It's an absolute... Um, I think it needed to happen. Sorry, what? Did you say rude health? Is that the word? I don't know. Yes. Yes. As in good health. Okay. Really, you know... Is that another vibrant. new expression? It's another new expression I've never heard of. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Scotching out <laughs> rumours and... Blue Box podcast from educational, the but only to the people <laughs> who are actually in it. Um, but, yeah, no, I just... I think this needed to happen. I think it needed to get back to this really nice, solid drama and entertainment. And for people who haven't watched the show before, would suddenly come back to it and say, oh, these are really great little episodes, really entertaining. And, yeah, no story arcs. Just, mm. just brilliant. But you know, there are those people out there, and you know, I've spoken to them on Facebook that absolutely adore the arcs and kind of missed it this time round. They well, missed that's the what really, I'm saying. I yeah, missed it. Yeah. Okay. And there was a minor arc, well, obviously, wasn't there? The whole lead up to the ponds going, mm. the ponds relationship had had reached a stage, and then that was what know. it did do was sow the seeds for the Christmas special and next year. Yeah. Which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, me too. And while you're looking forward to that, Lee, give me 60 seconds on State of Decay. State of Decay. Um, I think this was a story Terence Dix wrote. Um, you and think it was a story. I'm trying to remember because you put me on the spot. It did. It was. A, you wrote, wrote it, didn't it? But he also wrote it to be in a previous season or maybe previous two seasons, I think. And they didn't get around to doing it. So it ended up being um, whatever the season was it was in, uh, the Bidmead one. Uh, which is interesting because obviously Bib Mead likes the science and this is a tale of vampires. Um, and it's not actually a brilliant tale of vampires. A lot of people are enjoying it and like it. You know, they, they, they've they been saying it's, I know it's got the great vampire in it and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's all right. It's okay. The bats were rubbish. Um, but I do like the three, I like the idea of the three um, vampires being, am, am I up with time? No, not yet. Oh, the three vampires being... Um, kind of relations or the original drivers of the spaceship. Whose names have just devolved over a period of time. Yeah, and I can't remember what they're called. <clears throat> right, finally, and I deliberately saved this till the end, we had PS, which was, mm. you know, after the Angel story went out, a lot of people said, but what about Brian? And of course, as I explained <clears throat> in our podcast, Brian was a Chris Chibnall character that was solely in the Chris Chibnall stories. And at the time, Angels Take Manhattan was written and recorded. And nobody would have even thought to have put Brian in there. Plus, if you'd have put a coda scene in at the end, that was 
probably going to be several minutes long. It would have unbalanced the drama. <coughs> so, of course, there was no Brian in uh, The Angels Take Manhattan. But then, lo and behold, just a few days after everybody's screaming to the hills, what about Brian? The BBC only go and put PS up on their website. Which, of course, was the... Uh, they didn't film it, but they had the script. And so they had... Uh, Arthur Darville reading in the letter mm. from Rory. And um, what did we think? We, me and Simon both mentioned, mentioned, talk English, hang on. Me and Simon both mentioned this on the podcast, the Manhattan podcast. And we actually said that very thing where, you know, it should be a bit of a back to the future moment where he gets a letter and telling them that they're all okay. And we just said if that had been in there, it would have made the episode even better than it already was. And the emotion would have been perfect for it. References back to Blink as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. About getting a, a letter given to you by your yeah grandchild Descendant. or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Who's older than you. But we all watched it and I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was really good. And how that was all that all happened with purely a voiceover and a few still images. And a lovely piece of music from Murray mm. Geld as well that they used on it. Yeah, yeah. I've was so, that... Was Easy. Arthur Darville's so, voiceover done specifically for that kind of Easter egg as such, or had they recorded that with a view to filming it? Uh, no, I should imagine the voiceover was recorded specifically for that. Oh, I should have cool. thought so, yeah. I may have been in the studio to do an audio book or something, and they just perhaps recorded it while he was doing something else, I should have thought. Yeah. Or it could have been when he was coming in to do some ADR work or something. But I uh, should imagine they got him in. Uh, Richard Hugh Parkin says, having said I would have liked to see Melody's book afterward as a message for Brian, the BBC have just uploaded a short sequence written by Chris Chibnall called PS, which kind of covers this. It was written but not recorded, so has been roughly animated with storyboards and a voiceover by Arthur Darville. I've just watched it and been reduced to tears. Absolutely. It was beautiful. Really good. And like mm. you say, I think um, uh, Brian would have been brilliant in that scene. By the way, Lee, PS means postscript. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase before. No. Doesn't ring a bell. All right. Stucky Kark <laughs> says, I tweeted earlier that I was just crying after seeing what is just some pencil drawings with a soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. I think Mr. Darville deserves a lot of praise for that small monologue to his father. And Mark Williams deserves it too for making a lot of people happy, care about his portrayal of Brian to the extent where the question on most people's lips after the Ponds left was what about Brian? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well Sucky, you big crybaby. Um, <laughs> well, this is interesting because this is a conversation that you and I had, Simon, on the same thread on Facebook. But I'm going to read it out because it's, I think it's quite interesting and worth bringing up. You said, I think it could be worth a petition to get Chibnall's PS properly filmed for the box set release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I said, um, I think it's lovely just as it is. Mm as long as they do include it on the box set DVD release, there's something about its inauthenticity that makes it seem more authentic. Yeah, maybe. Uh, being as it is, such a remove from the Doctor and from the story that it refers back to. Uh, well, that's all I put, but to go into it further, I think it works so well and it's yeah. so lovely and it's so unusual mm. that part of the effect it has is because it's so unusual. I think if you filmed it now, having had that emotional yeah, no, response yeah, to yeah. the 
line drawings and the voiceover. I think if you filmed it now, you would take that initial response It's actually more away poignant yeah. as it stands. I've, I've had second thoughts <clears> about <throat> that, yeah. I think if I were to edit it into the programme, that would be different, but as a little um, nugget on its own. I don't know. Because no, it's I... a lost moment. It's almost like watching a recon, isn't it? Yeah. It is powerful, yeah. and I know exactly what you're saying, because it's removed. It, it, yeah, it's something it just very works different. beautifully. And it's very sincere. The whole thing's sincere, you know. Mr. Darvill mm. is doing a great job there. Yeah. But I think the scene, you know, could be quite powerful. It's filmed in the same vein as the rest of Manhattan. <clears throat> but you know what I also like about it is that <clears throat> this is going to be seen a bit meta. And in a way, it's quite meta, but in a way, it's also not. Like, two sides to this. We don't actually, because it's only a line drawing and they don't get an actor in to do the dialogue. We don't actually get to meet Rory and uh, Amy's child. So, you know, mm. Brian's grandson. Yeah. We don't actually get to meet him, which is nice in that it ties in with the fact that they've gone off to live their life as a book. Uh-huh. Yeah. But also, at the same time, I like the fact that we don't meet him because that leaves a little mystery about it, that 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 the... End of the Pond's story is something that we mm-hmm. have to imagine rather than can see. I, the end of their story is their child. Well, you say, we yeah, have to imagine yeah. that child. They become creatures of, <clears throat> say, a novel. Yeah. So on the meta yeah. side of it, they've become the fiction. Yes. And But on the non-meta side of it, we have to leave it to our imagination mm. what their child is and who their child is. Which is going to spark loads of interesting debate and drawings and cartoons mm. of the future and fan fiction yeah yeah i think so it'd be great to know what he what looks, like, life he looks like yeah what was his life like with his you know will he bump into the doctor you know that would, that would be an interesting story in so that his great grandfather could look after <laughs> him in his old age well yeah you've got this situation where he can't go over there any earlier than he does mm. because they're already living there can't cross the timelines and all that very interesting. I thought it's lovely, and uh, and the and the where they hug, where he completely he goes to shake his hand, doesn't oh he? Oh god, that was the bit that made me go. Mmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> goes to shake his hand. He doesn't shake his hand. He gives him a hug. He's completely accept- accepting of him. You can see it. He recognises him as a, and all that from drawings and words. Incredible, incredible, Mister Chibnall. You're a very clever man. Hey, yeah, it's been. To, to be honest, it's been Chris Chibnall's season. It started off with Pond Life that Chris Chibnall wrote. That's... The Twin Peaks were dinosaurs on a spaceship and the power of three for me. And then at the end of it, after a slightly disappointing end to the Pond story, it's saved by this wonderful postscript from Chris Chibnall. <laughs> the yeah. slice of damn fine cherry pie. <coughs> I knew somebody was going to pick me up on that. <laughs> But it's then again, it's, as well, actually, which it's an expression Chibnall. like any other. <laughs> no, it has been a revelation, Chris Chibnall. I mean, wow. You'd have thought it, eh? Well, there you go. Sure. <laughs> right, are we going to call it a wrap on that? It's a wrap. Aye. It is. Okay, uh, next time, I believe, next time or the time after, we're going to have an episode about the Peter Cushing movies. Yay! And about movies in general, and come back to the question that we started to ask during our questions episode about whether we think another, a new Doctor Who movie, would be a good thing. So that's what we'll come back to 
next time. Uh, I was JR. I was Mark. I was Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and you were Simon. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Don't sit on your finger. <laughs>